Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 25. And if you don't have your Bible, we always put it up on the screen as well. So here's, here's what I want to share as you're turning there, as you're directing your attention to the screen. The title of today's message is Counterfeit Gods, Counterfeit Gods. And here's what I would start with. I want to ask you the question, how do you become a better worshiper, right? I remember when I was first saved and I was going to Times Square Church, uh, I remember when I was attending there and, and I was really shy and uncomfortable and I, I just kind of stood there and I see people just praising God and, and just going all in. I'm like, man, I want to be like that. And I remember the time that I first raised my hands and I was like, this is awesome. I, I broke past this barrier that I had, right? I think if, if we would ask ourselves what makes us a better worshiper, sometimes we can think those are the things that when I feel comfortable to, to actually sing along and when I feel comfortable to clap and and uh, I go a step further, and now I'm actually able to lift my hands, and, and man, maybe I'll even dance one time, because I'm, now I'm really feeling comfortable in this place, and we say, man, I must be really growing as a worshiper. And don't get me wrong, that's really beautiful in stepping out in faith as the Lord leads you, but what I want to tell you is that worship goes so much deeper than that. I don't want us to simply raise our hands and sing songs because we see everyone else doing that around us, and we want to just fit in. I want to teach us that what the Bible talks about worship goes so far beyond what we see on the outside, but goes deep within the heart. The Father said in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, the Lord said, he says, the people come near to me with their lips. They honor me with their mouth, but their hearts, their hearts are far from me. He said, this, this worship that they give me, it's really just taught by humans, you understand that, that God delights when we respond out of what he's doing in our heart with outward worship. That's awesome. But really what he's looking at is the heart. To grow as a worshiper is ultimately to have our heart set on Jesus. It's to realize, yes, I've been blessed with good things in my life. I'm thankful for my job, for my money, for money, for family, for parents and children. I'm thankful for all of that. But ultimately, Jesus reigns supreme in my life. And as we as a body begin to fall deeper in love with Jesus and our hearts are directed more and more towards him, that is when heaven touches earth in here. It is not when we all sing in key with one another and all starting to learn the same songs where worship starts to get better here. No, it's when our hearts begin to burn for Jesus. We begin to see the, the, the falseness of the things that we trust in and place our security in, and we begin to see that Jesus is so much better. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to strip these things and put Jesus above everything, man, it is a powerful, powerful time we worship the Lord. And so I want to share this scripture with you because ultimately we're going to talk about is what the Bible would say, idolatry. And what I hope we see is that it's maybe a little bit different than what we thought. And so I want to read just a few verses here. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. We're talking about worship. And it says this. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. 
But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. We're going to go on a little bit of journey here speaking about counterfeit gods and really as we work through this series, actually Caesar, our worship leader, is going to close this series out and talk about this corporate worship, what we do here, because that's really important. But before we can get there, we've got to go deeper and get into the heart of the matter. And here's what Paul says here. Paul says, essentially, from the beginning, since creation, God has manifested himself through his creation. If you look around... Everything points to the fact that there is intelligent design. Everything points to the fact that there is a God. And as humans, we recognize design, right? I once heard it said in a teaching, if we were to go up to Mount Rushmore, would anyone say, look what the wind and rain has created? Not at all. We would all look at that and say, someone has made this because we recognize design. Yet what Paul is saying is when humans look around at this world and see that someone has obviously put this together, there's order instead of disorder, we recognize design, but we willfully choose not to recognize a creator because of our moral responsibility to him. And so we turn our back from him. And here's what takes place, is when we turn from God, Paul says what happens is, is then we exchange worship for the creator for created things. They said, why does that happen? Why, why can't I not just turn from God and then go live my life? Well, let me just direct you for a moment as we just get a little bit deeper to the Ten Commandments. The first commandment says that I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods besides me before me. You understand how that's worded and what that's saying? The first commandment says that there is only one God, and it leaves no option for a, 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 a third option. There's no room or possibility of not worshiping God and, and, just, and just living your life. You either worship God or you worship something else. There's no, there's no middle ground there. You see, we can say that a community is unchurched. Long Island is unchurched. Overwhelmingly, 3%, they say, go to church, which means that's a fair statement. We are unchurched, but no one is irreligious. Everyone worships something. That's what Paul's getting at. If you turn from God, your desire to worship is still there because we are worshipers. We don't just worship for a moment on an hour in a service. We are worshipers. So when we deny God, our hearts are prone to go and look for something else to worship. And we make the, the most grievous exchange. And instead of worshiping the glorious God, we settle for things that will decay and fall apart. And as a result, we see our lives falling apart as well. And let me be clear with you that this is not just something for unbelievers. If we're not careful, our hearts are so prone to wander and drift. And there are things that are always clawing and creeping at trying to get our, our allegiance to God. And if we're not careful and constantly checking our hearts and evaluating our hearts and saying, God, search me, we could still truly be his, but our heart begins to drift. We begin to place our trust, our hope, our confidence, and all of these other things outside of, of God. 
And as I was reading more about this and thinking about it, if you, if, if you fulfill the first commandment, every other commandment falls in line with that, right? So I, I, I don't steal, lie, cheat, covet, commit adultery unless I'm worshiping something different than God. See, once that's in order, then my life begins to flow in order. That's what's driving my actions. This is why this is so, so important because some of us, I know I have, have been through cycles of failure and we try harder and try to do better and then we fail and then we say, well, let me go talk to someone else and get counsel and then it's really just trying something different and then we fail again and then we fall into shame and then we start to get, fall into despair and hopelessness and before you know it, we're isolated and just want to quit because we don't see a way out. And when we get tired of that, we start all over and say, let me try again. The problem is we're not getting to the root of what's driving our action. The Bible is showing us, what Paul is showing us is that if you want to have a change in your cycle of death, you have to find out what is it that drives you? What is it that you're really worshiping? What is it that has a grip on your heart? You have to dig deep and let, let the Lord expose that. And when he shows you what you're really depending on, he then brings the glorious gospel and shows you that Jesus is enough. And that's where healing takes place. We must be masters of asking the question, why? I feel like as Christians, we do a really poor job of this. If someone falls into sin, it's like, well, he's a sinner and try harder next time, right? And, and it's like, just, just do better. You need Jesus. Yeah, those are all true, but why am I doing this? What's driving me? What has a grip on my heart? What am I placing my trust and my confidence in outside of God? And as you get to the root of that, that's where you experience the deepest of healing. And so you may be asking, what, what is an idol? I just want to be clear on this. Because I'm sure if, if we were to talk to some of you one-on-one, -on -one, you may think, as I did when I was first saved, isn't an idol in the Bible talks about like a statue, right? A, some type of totem pole that you, that you bow down to? Like I, that we're, that we're past that. I don't, I don't bow down to any totem pole, right? You look at the life of Paul. I want you to hear this, the life of Paul. As Paul would travel, and we see in the book of Acts, he would go to different cities. And as he traveled to each city, there was physical idols. I mean, literally temples of which they would worship these gods. There was the goddess uh, Epaphroditus, who was the goddess of beauty. And when he went to Ephesus, there was Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. And it's easy to see those things and say, well, man, we don't bow down to Epaphroditus, the goddess of beauty anymore. I mean, that's so archaic. That's biblical times. Really? Really? Go walk around New York City for just a few minutes. Look at the billboards that are posted up that scream at young men and women and say, if you want to have any value, if life will have any meaning, you must look like this. And as a result, we see people destroying themselves in the process as they worship this God of beauty. They fall into anorexia. They fall into bulimia. They, 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 they spend thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on plastic surgery just to try to stay young because they worship this God. You say, I don't worship the god, the goddess Artemis. I, I don't worship this goddess of wealth. Do you know that they used to take children and sacrifice them to this goddess in order to receive some type of wealth in return? You say, that's crazy. We've moved past that. I don't think so. I see families in the know of families that the parents are so driven by the dollar bill that they sacrifice their children through neglect. Sure, it may look a little different, but there still is a God that is ruling their life and is destroying their life. And God is calling us to taste the sweetness and the beauty of Jesus to set us free from that. Idols 
are not just something we physically bow down to. It's what our heart bows down to. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll find ourselves drifting into this. I'd ask you, what consumes your thinking? When you're, when you're alone, what, is, what, what grips your imagination? What do you find yourself, just, just your heart being set on? I'm not talking about occasional things, but what is it that you, you always go back to just thinking and, 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 and imagining about? What is it that if you lost, you would say, I don't, I don't know if I could go on living? What is that thing in your life that has you so gripped that you said, if I don't have this, life has no meaning, I have no purpose? Is it Jesus? Is it something else? What is it that we're looking for our value and identity and worth from? Is it Jesus? Are we trusting in something for comfort, security, acceptance more than Jesus? Are we looking to something for, for joy more than Jesus? Any one of these things that they creep in becomes an idol in our life. And here's one of the greatest mistakes that we make is that we usually think idols are bad things. What idols usually are, are good things that become ultimate things. Idols are usually good things that become ultimate things. And the reason why is because there is some type of satisfaction, and rightfully so, and children and all these other things. But what happens is when we allow them to become ultimate in our life, and they begin to rise above Jesus in our life, which means idols can be anything. It can become family, a spouse, children, making money, achievement, our competence and skill, some type of relationship, your beauty or your brains, your morality or virtue, a successful career, or even a successful Christian ministry. If we're not careful, we'll allow good things to become ultimate things in our life. And what will drive us is we'll say, if I can just obtain this one thing, life will have meaning and I will have significance and security. And we kill ourselves in the process going after it. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a controlling thing in our life. Jesus wants to reign supreme in our life. And let me just share this, that idols, idols can be really hard to spot, okay? They can be really difficult because the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it but God? We think we're doing things for one reason, but as we actually, if we would get before the Lord and dig deep, sometimes we realize, oh my goodness, this is what's driving me. This is why I'm really doing this. And everything I've just talked about up until this moment is more of surface level things. But the truth is there's even another level of which we need to go deeper. There's motivations that drive that. And so I want to share this, it's really important. I don't know who's going to be handing it out. Maybe it's Rochelle at the end of service, but I've put together this sheet that covers a number of different things with idols, asking us questions. Um, it gives us different examples of things. It's so important, that's your homework assignment, just to grab this, dig deep, and not just for a, a one-week thing. This is something that we must, we must live by, constantly going back and reevaluating our heart and saying, God, search me, Lord. Tell me if there's something that, that I'm allowing to become ultimate in my life. And so there's going to be, in that sheet, explain a lot of this, but I'll just share four, four things. Power, approval, comfort, and control are pretty much the four most popular driving motives of why we do things. So just lean on this for a second. This is why it's so important, because you see someone struggling with money, right? I'll just use this example. You see someone struggling with money, and the easy answer is to say, well, he's a sinner, and he needs to learn how to trust Jesus. Wait. What is driving him to place all of his, his efforts and money, right? For some, security and control drive that. 
They feel very, very secure when they have a lot of money in their bank account. So that's why they go after money. For others, money allows them to get into certain social circles that they couldn't get into before. So money provides a form of acceptance and approval. For others, their money gives them power, and power is what's driving them. They like to have people serve them and to dominate others. And that's why we have to become masters of asking ourselves, why am I doing this, Lord? Show me. Reveal the depths of my heart, God, that I can let the gospel speak over that and find true and deep and lasting healing. You know, there's an example. Tim Keller is so good. I've shared with some of the guys. I really, listen, if you want to go deeper in idols, this man, I've learned so much from, from him, a great pastor in New York City at Redeemer Presbyterian. His, his name's Tim Keller, but he, he shares this story that's so powerful. He says he was ministering to a young man, and this young man had a real lust problem, as it, that's what it appeared to. He was constantly sleeping around with women, and they said, man, this guy's got a problem with lust. And then, and then he goes to Bible college, and he stops doing it. And they say, victory, it's over. But what they found out was happening is as he was meeting in Bible studies and going out on evangelistic outreaches, he was extremely dominating. He would talk over people. He would never let people get a word in. He was always just, just shutting them down. He had to control the whole thing so much that people said, I can't even be around this guy anymore, and people wouldn't have Bible studies. And what they found was that his real idol, what was driving him, wasn't, wasn't lust. It was power. Life only had meaning. He only felt like he had significance when he could dominate other people. In one sense, it was through sexual relationships. In another, it was coming through Bible study. But if we're not careful and we're not letting God search our heart, there's so many different things that can be driving us. And so you may be asking, well, how, how the heck do you know what it is? This seems like it's impossible. Look, it's a work of the Lord. The Holy Spirit will do it. But as I said, there are some things that you can ask and really dig deep. I'll share one example with you. Anger. I talked about this with, with, uh, with Caesar. Anger. Do you know that anger is a really good thing? You ever read the scripture that say God sometimes burns with anger? You say, what is that? Sometimes I would just read past it like, I don't understand that. I, I don't know what to do with that. That can't be good. But actually, if you find where God gets angry, God gets angry when that which he loves is threatened. You see, anger is a really beautiful thing. I, I thank God that my God burns with righteous anger when sin threatens my relationship with him, that he doesn't just push me aside, but that there's an anger that rises up that wants to destroy that because he wants to be close to me. And so our anger will often reveal what we love most. So I would ask you, look at the patterns of anger in your life. Where do you find yourself having these outbursts and frustration and, and, and just feeling like you explode on people? Often the patterns, and patterns of anger in our life can reveal the secret treasures of our heart. And that's just one example. There's many, but again, that's on the back. But, but idols, they're deep. Sometimes they're hard to, hard to be able to distinguish, but they're extremely, extremely dangerous. And so let me just share three things with you, three characteristics of idols, and then I'm just going to give you Jesus to see the beauty of him. You guys follow me right now? Yeah. All right. So number one, idols are weak in themselves. They're powerless. They actually can't do anything. So we build our lives on these things, but actually they can't give anything that they say. They can't give us the security, the hope, the joy. They all fall short at some point. They're actually extremely weak. That's why it says in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 16, verse 12, 
in referencing Moab, this pagan nation, it says that when Moab goes to her high place, in other words, to worship her idols, it says she only wears herself out. When she prays, it's to no avail. When we go before our false gods and we bank our whole life on them, it's to no avail. In the end, we're just left exhausted, depressed, and absolutely broken because they can't do what they would promise. But here's the serious thing. Not only are idols weak, on one side they're weak, but then they're also extremely dangerous to us because they promise to liberate, they promise to bring freedom if we can just have this thing, but in the end it actually just enslaves us. You see, we read in Romans it says that when they exchanged the worship of the creator for the created things, it says that they worshiped and served created things. Why? Because what you worship, you will also serve. It will become your master if you are not careful, and it will dominate you, and it will, it will make sure that you give complete dependence on, on that thing. And so the problem with this is it will extend us. Those kids get in my ear. <laughs> this is a lot of skill, and you got kids yelling in the background. <laughs> no, they're having fun. They are having fun. It's good. So... Whatever you worship, you will serve. And here's the problem then. As it becomes your master, one of the signs of that something has an unhealthy grip on your life is it always takes you past healthy boundaries because you can't stop now because whatever it tells you to do, you must do it. And so that's why if someone is so gripped by work, they're willing to cut ethical corners to do whatever it takes just to make an extra buck or promote themselves. They're willing to even work to the point that their physical body's falling apart, but they can't stop. This thing keeps driving them. They're willing to even allow their families to fall apart if this thing has that type of control on their life. Why do you see people stay in such abusive relationships in every way, physically, sexually, they're abused, and yet they stay. Why? Because love has become supreme. And the only way they feel they have any type of meaning or value is if they're in some type of romantic relationship. And so even though this relationship is killing them, they can't stop because they're a slave to it. It's their master. They can't get out of it. And then it gets even worse is if you lose this thing that you've built your life on, sorrow's one thing. It's good to have sorrow. You lose a good thing, you'll experience sorrow. That's biblical. But when you lose an ultimate thing, you fall to despair. You see no way of living. You become absolutely hopeless, and the only thing you can see is, I must end my life. Can I share you the destruction of idols? I know we're talking about different things, but we can't lose sight of how ugly these things are. Why Jesus has come to set us free when we worship these fake gods. Let me just share you this, this one example. 2008, for those of you who were working at that time, you know that was a very significant time in our economy, global economy. Everything began to collapse, and there was a crisis that hit. And unfortunately, there was a series of events that began to take place with some of the highest executives of these multi-billion dollar companies. And understand this, I don't say this to make light of their life at all, but to show you the destruction of building our life on empty promises and sinking sand. And in 2008, when the economy crashed, the CFO of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, was found hanging himself in the basement. The CEO of Sheldon Good, the CEO, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his Jaguar. When he lost his money, he saw no way to live. I can't go on. I've lost my God. 
A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families. He lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money because he was involved in the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. He slit his wrist and died in his Madison Avenue office. Could not go on living. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his $700 night suite in Knightsbridge, London. And there was a Bear Stearns executive, a high-up executive, and when their firm collapsed in 2008, J.P. Morgan bought them out. And when J.P. Morgan, Morgan bought them out, they said, we wouldn't be hiring you. And when he heard about that, he medicated himself to such a degree that he jumped off a 29-story building of his office and died. This is what happens when we build our life on fake gods. When we build our life on created things rather than the creator, the one who can deeply satisfy and fulfill. Eventually we lose that thing and it crushes us. That's why Paul says in the Romans what we read, he said the worst thing that can happen, the worst thing that can happen is for God to allow us to grab hold of what we're desiring. It says that God turned them over to their sinful desires. His wrath is not adding something extra. The wrath of God is he releases from pursuing and said, if that's what you want, go for it. And when we grab hold and build our lives on these empty things, it destroys us. Paul said that's the worst thing that can happen. There's a man by the name of David Wallace, David Foster Wallace. He was a famous, uh, famous English writer, won a lot of awards. And unfortunately, again, he took his own life in 2008. He wasn't a believer, but listen to what he said here about worship. Listen to this. Don't miss this. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. So he says, this is what I've come to realize. You might as well worship God because everything else will literally destroy you if you build your life on it. And then this is what he says. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. And worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And he said the crazy thing of, of these things is that it's just natural for us to, to default to these things. If we're not careful, our hearts will naturally drift to begin to worship created things. And so these idols are weak in themselves, they're extremely dangerous, and they're grievous to Jesus Christ. Understand this before we just talk, to, talk about Jesus and finish here. Jesus gave himself up at infinite cost for us. And when we begin to worship idols, place our trust and security, find satisfaction in these things more than we do in Jesus, we essentially tell Jesus, Lord, you are not enough. This thing is more beautiful, fulfilling, and sweet to my taste than you. You are negotiable, but this thing is not. I can lose you, Lord, but I cannot lose this thing. And I want you to know Jesus is here today to grip our hearts once more. Because he knows that only when our life is built on him and him alone can there be true freedom. He's the only one that comes to capture our hearts to set us free. Can I just share Jesus with you for one moment as we close right here? I want you to just picture this. In the beginning, what Romans talks about is what happened with Adam and Eve. 
When they were in the garden, they made the grievous exchange. And instead of trusting in God, they trusted themselves. They made the exchange. Instead of worshiping creator, they worshiped created things. And as you look throughout the entire story of the Bible, you see the consequences of that. So much so that man was so entrenched and so infatuated with this world and worshiping the things of this world that he could never look to the heavenlies anymore. We no longer looked up to God anymore. And what did God do? Even though we never looked towards him, God has not, never stopped looking towards us. And so it says in Romans that instead of worshiping the glorious God, we made images, man-made images, things of, of, that look like men and birds and reptiles. And so what does God do in his grace and mercy? He brings heaven to us because we would no longer look to the heavens. He sends Jesus Christ, who although was equal with God, made himself nothing and made himself into the image of what? A man. So that heaven could stand before us and say, even though you don't look up to me, I've never stopped looking at you. And he stands before us in the form of a man and said, this is what you worship, but I stand as before you as the real thing. Heaven stands before you. And God came to our rescue. And we made the grievous exchange of worshiping created things. But Jesus has reversed it with the great exchange of coming down and revealing himself to us in order that he could grip our hearts once more and set our hearts on what is above. And that's why it says in Colossians 3, we'll put it up on the screen, listen to this. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Jesus comes down, shows us heaven in the form of a man, and when he raises up, those who have put their faith in him are raised with him, that we can set our eyes on heavenly things. You understand what it's saying? Jesus has made a way for us to worship the creator again, to have our heart directed toward the heavenlies and no longer be bound by the things of this world. He's broken the power of sin and darkness in our life. And he sets us free and he calls us today in light of what he has done to lift our eyes up once more to him, to find that he is so beautiful, that he is so good, that he's better than anything in this world, that he's the only thing that we can actually build our life on. And so I leave you with these two things. There's two things that we have to do as we get into this process of removing and dethroning these idols. It's repentance and rejoicing. You can't have one without the other. If you just repent and turn from your idols, you'll fall into despair. If you skip repentance and go into rejoicing, it'll be very superficial. So God calls us to repent and rejoice. It's all in the same thing. And what he's calling us to do is to see how devastating and destructive these idols are in our heart, to see how nasty they are, to see how grievous they are to Jesus Christ. And as we're doing that, though, he's asking us also to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus and to rejoice, not just to sing a song, but to have the deepest fulfillment, the deepest satisfaction, the deepest appreciation in who Jesus is. And as we gaze upon his beauty and we see him, he becomes sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. That's why we have guys like Eric Gilmore coming to teach us how to gaze upon Jesus and see how beautiful he really is. You see, we don't need to just experience the 
We don't need to just talk about the peace of God. We can't just say, I'm looking to peace from this thing. I need the peace of Jesus, or I'm looking to joy, and I need the peace of, of the joy that Christ gives. We need to experience the peace and joy that come through Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward as we close right here. But the call today, don't miss this. The call today is we want to say, Lord, search my heart. God, is there something in my life that even though it may be a good thing, it has become an ultimate thing in my life? Lord, is there something that I place above you? I would encourage you to say today, maybe, maybe you find yourself as that one who's always in those cycles of failure. You say, I don't understand. I try harder. I even read my Bible more and more and more. That's a good thing. But if you don't know what's driving you, you never get to the heart of what you're actually worshiping. It all comes back to, to that first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And God calls us today and this morning to gaze upon his beauty, to see the destruction of what we've been placing our trust in and say, Lord, I'll come back to you. You see, idolatry is not just, it's not just failure to obey God. It's that our hearts were completely set on something besides him. And therefore, we have to repent and rejoice and allow Jesus to, to take his rightful place in the throne of our hearts. If you just repent, guess what happens? If you just turn from your idols, but you never replace it with the greater joy in Jesus, you go right back because you have to worship. You'll find something else. Or you'll just bounce around from different idol to idol to idol. The way to find freedom is as you turn from these things in your life, you begin to worship the one true living God. Remember, idols are mainly good things, so I'm not asking you to hate your family. I'm not asking you to, to not love your kids. I'm not asking you to not love your work. What I'm saying is to find that Jesus is the supreme love. I'm not asking you to not have joy in this world, but what I'm asking is to find the greater joy in Jesus. May he stand so far above all things that he has the grip on our heart. I'm going to ask you to stand with me right here. Listen to me right here as we close. In Revelation, Jesus says something. I was talking about one of the guys in the church. In Revelation, this is what Jesus says. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Don't miss this. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Do you know that was addressed to a church? Jesus wasn't addressing the loss. He was addressing a church. And he calls us to repent. And some of us have a misunderstanding. and say, why? Because he wants to just, just absolutely embarrass us and humiliate us? No, no, no. He calls us to repent because he stands at the door and wants to come in. He wants to be more intimate with us. He wants to be closer with us. And so therefore, he pleads with us, turn from these superficial things that you put your trust in. Turn from these things that you made ultimate. I love you so much. I heard the call of God even this morning saying, tell my people I love them. I call them to lay these things down because I am so much sweeter. I am so much better. And I've come here to bring freedom. And who the sun sets free is free indeed. And if you built your life on a sinking promise, I tell you right now, the one true living God, he stands here today and he begs you to come, repent, open the door that I may dine with you. 
And if you need prayer here today, if you see there's something brewing in your life that you know is unhealthy, I just invite you to come forward as we close in a song of worship. Thank you for listening to Home Church's podcast. To go deeper into the message, text DEEPER to 66866. If you would like to give to this ministry, you can text the amount to 631-693-4176 or visit us at myhomechurch.org backslash give.